Hi, and welcome to the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. I'm Ken Cadet. Today, we have the next episode in our ongoing interview series on the challenges of post-quantum security, hosted by my colleague, Samantha Maybe. In this episode, we look at the challenge of putting big quantum encryption algorithms in very small packages, connected devices from doorbells to thermometers to tire sensors that are increasingly part of our everyday lives. Samantha talks with Dr. Sarah McCarthy, cryptographic strategist at Evolution Q and an affiliate of the University of Waterloo, as well as Anthony Hu, senior software development at Wolf SSL, to explore these challenges. As always, send your feedback to cybersecurityinstitute at entrust.com. And with that, take it away, Samantha. Sarah and Anthony, thank you both for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So in previous episodes, we've talked about the need for an impact of post-quantum cryptography, mostly with regards to the critical role it plays uh, as far as securing data, especially long-life data, or the impacts of PQC on technology, like within an organization's security infrastructure. So in my role, I do deal a lot with and talk about machine identities, which in addition to workloads also includes devices and IoT devices. So I'm very interested in diving into this conversation with you both uh, to learn more about the impacts of post-quantum cryptography on these devices. So at that, we might as well just jump into it. Um, So just sort of starting at the beginning, when we think about modern cryptography, as it relates to machines, we tend to think of organizational assets and big devices like websites, databases, phones, laptops. But of course, there's countless small or constrained devices from a Wi-Fi doorbell to thermometers to automotive tire pressure sensors. So if you could tell us a bit about how cryptographic engineering changes as you downsize to securing these. Yes. So As you said, Samantha, IoT really affects all industries. It affects utilities, the medical industry, building automation and like industrial applications, for example, sensors. And these devices are all very small, like physically in size, they are small. And this means the hardware within them that's running the cryptography is also small. And as the physical size of these devices and their associated hardware decreases, our cryptography is only growing. And we call these sorts of devices constrained devices because they don't have the capacity to run cryptography or any other computational processes as those larger devices, like you mentioned earlier, do. And furthermore, just because these are small devices, doesn't mean that we don't need security on them. In fact, it's maybe even a greater need for security as these devices are out in the wild, they're open to all sorts of attacks and people have access to them. We can't lock them in a server room and ensure that the key is with a trusted person, like the physical key. Mm -hmm. And we even know about this paranoia over protecting your, your RFID with a special wallet with an aluminium sheet in it and this is exactly example of why we need cryptography on these devices but we need to then think about 
the the hardware, the constrained hardware on these devices, and they have smaller memory and a smaller clock speed, and even the power consumption needs to be monitored as quite often they run on a battery. So we need to be mindful of that. And another aspect is because these devices are out in the wild, we need to consider side channel attacks. So we need to protect the implementations to be sure that if someone is able to do an analysis of the timing or the power consumption of the device, that they aren't. Mm -hmm. Do you have something to add there, Anthony, as well? Yeah. So Sarah brings up a really good point about being in the wild and, you know, other kinds of side channels and, 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 um, you know, what I kind of want to briefly go into, you know, what those attacks are, how they work and how, how they get mitigated. Um, so like, if you assume you have physical security and certain mitigations aren't, you know, that important, but with IOT, um, you know, having professionally hardened implementations becomes a critical requirement. You need to thwart timing attacks, cache attacks, and, you know, glitching. And so I'll go into, I think I should go in, uh, into, not in depth, but give a slight, uh, a, qu a quick explanation of what each of those are. Um, timing attacks are when you use certain um, operations and data to figure out properties of the private key. Um, you, you analyze, you, you give it bad data, for example, a bad public key, or sorry, a bad um, signature, and analyze based on the time um, prop and get properties of the private key. Um, now, the way to thwart this is just to simply create constant time implementations of, um, of your operations. Uh, so cache attacks are when processors do speculative operations on branches and they pre-calculate results. Um, once these results are pre-calculated, they leave them behind. And if your if your attacker has access to your to your device, such as an IoT device, because they're out in the wild, then we might be able to glean information from the cache. Um, again, this is basic. The way to thwart this is again with no branching in the implementation. So it's just another constant time implementation. Uh, so now for glitching, this is when the adversary can feed um, modified data. Uh, actually modified at the hardware level, and they and then observe the error behavior and deduce information from about the private key. Now this can be thwarted by um, by copying the inputs to these operations into buffers before the cryptographic operation, and then comparing the input the input buffer with the separate buffer after the cryptographic operation to ensure that it hasn't been changed. Um, and, and that's how you detect it. And if you do detect this change, then you then you you do some sort of countermeasure. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is that all these threats are present in current algorithms. So experienced professionals know how to already know how to handle these threats. And so uh, we're in good hands in that sense. But again, it's it's it, it the 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 experience is where um, all of this is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I actually love what you guys are saying about, you know, these devices being out in the wild. I think I'm going to coin that term as well and start using it because, yeah, we talk about that all the time, right? The threat landscape has expanded um, with these kinds of devices and machines, as well as, you know, machine to machine communication. There's so much 
going on between them without any human intervention. So absolutely, security is, is crucial there. To move on, um, Sarah, you kind of alluded to this a little bit in, in your response to the last question, um, just as far as, you know, these devices, the, the size of them or the limits. But some of these embedded devices, they already struggle with using the lightest of elliptic curve cryptography. So while still having, you know, memory, battery life, network bandwidth left over uh, for whatever it is they're actually supposed to be doing um, with PQC algorithms, they're at least 20 times bigger and heavier than elliptic curves. So how exactly are these devices going to manage? Exactly, Samantha. This is our main challenge around running post-quantum cryptography on embedded devices. So there are three main factors to consider. First, there's the random access memory. And this is kind of the the, mem- the memory that holds uh, type temporary files like your your keys, your signatures, and gener- information is generated on the fly when running this algorithm. And this is much smaller than uh, on a microcontroller than on a CPU, or if we consider what's needed for post-quantum cryptography, it can't really accommodate that. So if we consider the random access memory, which is the volatile memory on a microcontroller, it needs to hold like large public keys and large signatures in the memory. And comparing the public key size of a post-quantum algorithm to ECC, it's much larger. Take, for example, dilithium. Its public key size is over 1,000 bytes. And even its signature size is 2,500 bytes. And this just doesn't fit on the RAM. And then we also look at the read-only memory, which is the storage that stores like the entire implementation. It's the read-only storage. And when we think about the entire size of the code that it covers these post-quantum algorithms, it's much larger. In dilithium, it could be tens of thousands of bytes, and that makes it just infeasible to store on one of these small devices. Mm-hmm. And in addition, the clock cycle count of a microcontroller, the speed of it is measured in megahertz, not gigahertz like it would be used to with larger machines. So this means we're going to need to increase the kind of the number of clock cycles to be able to run these algorithms. So what do we do about it? Well, there are ways of like optimizing the algorithms using accelerators in the hardware and there's a lot of research that takes place in this space at the minute so yeah from my perspective i've come to learn um in development on embedded systems it's really fraught with you know a lot of trade-offs you know so what we do is we trade off memory storage um, power consumption and execution times and all of these things are played against one another Um, it all depends on the costs Um, for some some manufacturers, certain thing certain components are going to be cheaper than others. Maybe you can get a fast processor, but your storage is really expensive. So you're gonna wanna um, you're gonna wanna do something like minimize your storage while not worrying too much about execution time. So you so examples include like pre-generating certain lookup tables to minimize execution time. 
but at the cost of storage because you have to have those tables. But on the other end of that spectrum would be generating those tables on the fly to minimize the storage requirements at the expense of execution time. So really, there, that's just an example of a trade-off right there. Um, now, specifically for post-quantum algorithms, execution time for Dilithium, Kyber, and Falcon are relatively, um, they're relatively not bad compared to elliptic curves. And it's thankfully not that big an issue. But of course, that comes at the cost of artifact sizes, as, uh, as Sarah mentioned. Uh, this affects memory, storage, and transmission times. Um, as the more data you have to transmit, you know, the longer it's going to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's no way around that, right? So this might require an upgrade to network technology, um, which is expensive, right? We're talking about whole infrastructures. And that could trigger, you know, power consumption issues. And not only are those trade-offs, right? So it's not only just a single trade-off, but it's also a cascading trade-off, which is like um, something to really consider and something that, you know, you really have to start thinking about now. Yeah. And an important factor to think about when we're thinking of IoT is that these are primarily wireless devices. So not only do we need to think about how we're going to run the encryption algorithms, the signature algorithms on the device, but how are we then going to transport this information to another device or server somewhere? So this usually takes place within a communication protocol and these have their own constraints. So there's a whole public key infrastructure involved. We need to consider certificate management, authentication, authenticating the users and um, negotiating algorithms and setting up the secure channel and the bandwidth is usually limited as well and this could be a problem when we're dealing with the large public key sizes and the large ciphertext and signature sizes of post-quantum algorithms and NIST the standardization body is currently standardizing post-quantum they really considered this in their most recent round when they selected a few of the algorithms to standardize. And it was thought that they would just choose one of the lattice-based signature algorithms, but in fact, they chose two. And the reason that they chose Falcon in addition to this is for this reason, because the public key size of Dilithium is just too large to transfer over these wireless communication channels. For example, one application is vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, which runs over DSRC, which is, stands for Dedicated Short-Range Communication Channel, and it restricts the packet sizes to 2,304 bytes. And if we try to send a dilithium-based certificate over this, it quite frankly does not fit. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I'd love to give you another example very similar to that, which is um, you know, DTLS. DTLS is a, is a widely known and, and it's, it's a popular protocol, um, but it runs on top of UDP, which has small packet sizes. This means that the handshake message could be fragmented. Um, in fact, it must be fragmented. If you think about the NSA's CNSA 2.0 guidance, they're suggesting that you need to use the lithium 1024, which is at level five as defined by the new security levels. So we now know they're going to be fragmented handshake messages. Um, 
And if you fragment your handshake messages, that means you have to keep them somewhere. And that means memory consumption. But not only that, it means state. It means you have to keep um, storing all these fragments. Um, and then, and so the, the naive approach would be, yeah, I'll just store them. That's fine. So I'll store fragments. But that leads you to, well, how much do you store? I mean, if you're on a constrained device, how many fragments are you willing to store? How many connections are you going to wait for? And these are these are questions that if you don't properly consider an answer, you get into a denial of service situation. And so, again, this is where professional um, de developers and security developers are already know how to handle this stuff, but it's very important that you're using professional grade software in production. Mm -hmm. And with most of the PQC algorithm benchmarking, um, that's happening on full size CPUs. So, what are the struggles, if you guys can talk about that a bit, of doing PQC benchmarking and prototyping work on small custom processors? So, when you're benchmarking, um, you're looking for efficiencies. So you, you need you know to find opportunities to optimize. And you're doing this competitively because everybody else wants to be the fastest. We all want to be the fastest. <laughs> um, but since your main processor is obviously not as strong as what you have in the PC set, let's say, um, you have to consider you know hardware accelerators. A great example is Sphinx Plus. It does a lot of hashing. So it would seem that if you know if you have hardware accelerated SHA, then you will have a big big advantage. And when I say SHA, I mean like a hash, hashing algorithm. Um, but you know that's not necessarily the case. In Sphinx Plus, the hashing happens on Merkle trees, so you're hashing very small content um, many times, and that's not what hardware accelerated hashing is good at. You know they're they're fast at hashing large chunks of data. And so setup time can be a factor. And so it might actually be slower if you use the hardware acceleration. So it's worth, you know, using a hardware accelerated SHA for Sphinx Plus. You know, I, I actually don't know. Um, we have to run some benchmarks. <laughs> well, to that point, um, obviously, there's still there's tons of work and research ongoing. But uh, are there any alternative ways of making PQC work for IoT? Yeah, so. Projects like PQM4 and PQClean, uh, they're geared towards the microcontroller market and microcontroller hardware and constrained devices, and they've done excellent work on benchmarking these algorithms. Um, Sarah's team at UW, in fact, did similar work, um, utilizing the NEON instructions and crypto extensions to optimize post-quantum uh, post cryptographic algorithms. Uh, for Xilinx ZYMQ Ultra Scale Plus in, in hardware security uh, module. And with increasing research into post quantum cryptography, more out of the box solutions are being considered. We have these so called advanced primitives, which tend to be more lightweight and lend themselves to the IoT setting very well. And some of these did exist in the pre post quantum world but there wasn't always an obvious use case and they weren't necessary. So lattice-based cryptography has this special structure, which in particular allows for identity-based primitives. So with identity-based encryption or signatures, 
we can essentially replace this large public key with the identity of a device or a user. And this mitigates the need to share this public key over those communication channels I spoke about earlier. And the key generation process takes the public key and can generate the corresponding private key at any point. So someone could have already sent a message uh, encrypted to me using my public key without me even having my private key yet. So it provides some flexibility in this. And another ex example of a lightweight primitives is implicit certificates, where rather than sending a, a large certificate, we can just send this small kind of reconstruction value and reconstruct a certificate using an already distributed public key. And this is used in vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, but as of yet, it has not been realized in the post-quantum setting. So this is one of the challenges that researchers are working in, but it does give us some hope for solutions that aren't tied to our generic encryption and signature algorithms. What do you guys see? We've talked a lot about, um, you know, the post-quantum side, the, the cryptography side, the research. But what do you see as some of the greatest struggles for manufacturers and operators of these constrained devices when it comes to preparing for the quantum threat? I think the the main problem is that every company is constantly updating their technology. And this is first costly, time consuming, involves retraining of their engineers. And the fact that we're still working out how to run post-quantum algorithms on our existing hardware and the fact that we may need to replace that hardware in the next 10 years can sort of provide a little bit of uncertainty for them and they're not really sure where to invest their time and money whether to hold off or are they going to upgrade to the latest recommendations now or they should they wait until post quantum comes along so i find this is the main challenge for users of these devices at the minute mm -hmm. Yeah. So the embedded world uh, is a little bit different from the, you know, the PC programming world. Um, you, you're, you're, you're leaving, you, you don't have as many of the larger frameworks um, that you have in, in the other kind of serve in the server world. Uh, for example, POSIX, you know, um, the, the embedded world is a little bit more fragmented and, and and the ecosystem is very, very, there's a, there's a large variety. And I, I think diversity is actually a good thing, but in terms of where we are with, with, um, you know, post quantum and development, it's, it's a little harder because there's, there's so much, because of there's so much diversity, uh, you know, all, a lot of changes have to happen across the board, across that diversity. And so, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of work, um, which you know this 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 leads to a potential slowdown in development, and thus I think the IoT migration will likely be a, a, a bit longer and more painful than what we've seen in the uh, in the regular server kind of industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're already predicting this whole transition, this whole migration is going to be a magnitude more difficult than anything we've seen before. So um, yeah, it's. Uh, all eyes on this as it as it continues to develop and more research comes. I very much appreciate you guys taking this time. Um, and before we do wrap up, I I do like to get uh, a key tech takeaway or recommendation 
um, from from you guys. I'd love to hear from both of you. Just something for for our listeners to take away. Yes. So I think for me, what has been highlighted in our conversation today and across wider discussions with the community is that this is not an easy process. So I think if you're wondering what you can do today for your organization or your research or whatever kind of place you come from is start identifying what will need to change. You might not know what is going to change, but if you know where your cryptography is in your system and what kind of hardware you have, what uh, communication protocols you're currently using, at least having an awareness so when the time comes that post-quantum cryptography is standardized, you know exactly where it needs to go and what changes you'll need to make to your systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to I want to echo what Sarah just said there. Lots, we'll give a great example, which is that a lot of work in the post-quantum world and po- in the protocol sense is on, in TLS 1.3. So people aren't really thinking about TLS 1.2 now. So something you can do now, today, is migrate from something like TLS 1.2 to 1.3 if you are still using 1.2. Similarly, DTLS, if you're using DTLS 1.2, I don't think anyone's um, thinking about how to get post-quantum into DTLS 1.2. So you're going to want to move to DTLS 1.3. And DTLS 1.3 is is particularly well-suited for the embedded world. Um, Now, this is going to be a bigger problem than you might think because there aren't very many DTLS 1.3 implementations out there even today, right? Um, not only is WolfSSL the only DTLS 1.3 library I know of, but it already supports post-quantum uh, algorithms. So, I mean, it's it's really interesting. It, it, it's, it might be an interesting exercise to try to move uh, from your TLS or DTLS 1.2 to 1.3 today just to you know, get that low-hanging fruit while you can. Yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate that from both of you guys. And you know what? I appreciate this whole conversation. Like I said, it's, it's something we've not talked about in previous episodes. So that's it for today's podcast. Keep up with new episodes by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter using the links in the episode description.